While the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. Amen. So, I, um, it's great to be back at Two Rivers. Uh, my, I wish my son, uh, Coleman, and my wife, Aspa, were able to be with us, um, but they are in Durham, North Carolina this weekend at probably the nerdiest thing that I've ever heard of. It's a Magic the Gathering tournament. And uh, my son, is, uh, he's all about going into deep dives. So anything that he really, that he starts to like, he like, like goes after it voraciously. And so he's um, at, a, at a tournament this weekend with a bunch of men that probably live in their mom's basements. Um, but he is, uh, and it, my wife said he's the only teenager there. But um, he is uh, attacking it voraciously. Uh, toward the end of Coleman's fourth grade year, um, he started reading Harry Potter. And so, like always, uh, he dove right in, and uh, I'd see him up reading late at night at like 10.30, and with his little camping headlight on in his room, and, and I just didn't have it in, him to, in me to like chide him and tell him to go to sleep, because like parents love when their kids are reading, you know? Um, so, uh, Coleman made his way through most of the first five books uh, during his fifth grade year, but for his sixth grade uh, year, he started at a new school. And on the third or fourth day of school, he came home really depressed and really sad. And he said, Mom, today a boy at school told me about what happens with Dumbledore and what happens with Harry and the rest of the books. I won't I won't say what happens, but he was so crushed that he refused to read any further. You know, halfway through the fifth book. So Coleman's about to enter his 10th grade year in high school, and he's going to take pre-calculus, and he's taking like a college English class, but uh, he still will not read Harry Potter. He won't even listen to it on tape in the car when Aspa tries to make him. So The point of today's sermon is that how a story ends, how a story ends really matters. In the summer of 2018, we lost two great American cultural artists of our time, Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain. Spade was just a a normal lady who had an incredible eye um, and made the most beautiful handbags that women all over the world fell in love with. And Anthony Bourdain was one of America's sort of greatest chefs who created a show where he traveled the world uh, sort of introducing Americans to the beauty of foreign foods and peoples. And so both Spade and Bourdain had such an amazing talent for seeing and creating beauty in the world. Yet for them, the world was still so painfully broken that they couldn't bear to go on living. And they took their own lives. They seemingly had it all. Immense wealth, loving family, health, stability, widespread admiration. They had fulfilling careers. And yet, with all of that beauty, they seemingly, they they had everything 
but that beauty was eclipsed by brokenness. They couldn't go any further. They couldn't take it another day. Have you ever felt like the beauty of creation was eclipsed by its brokenness? The story of the Bible breaks down into four sections. Creation, where creation is good. Then there's the fall, where creation is corrupted by sin. Then the third section is redemption, where creation is being regained. And then the fourth is what we're talking about today, the consummation, or it's also called the restoration, where creation is fully restored and glorified. We don't talk about that very much often in the church. Our passage today teaches us some important things about the consummation, how the story ends. And so in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, it introduces us to what's called the new heavens and the new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. How the story ends matters. It's essential for us to be able to sort of bear today with hope. And our hope is this idea of the new heavens and the new earth. So the Apostle John is going to answer three questions in this passage. One, why is the new heavens and the new earth a necessary part of the gospel? It, why, you know, if we don't talk about it that much, it can't be that necessary. Second, what will the new heavens and the new earth be like? And then the third thing is, what's the dif- what, you know, what difference does the new heavens and the new earth make to me today? All right, so first, why is the new heavens and the new earth a necessary part of the gospel? Full redemption, full redemption was always meant to be physical. It was always meant to be physical. If you have a Bible this morning, put your finger in Revelation 21 and turn back in your Bible to Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 19. The idea of embracing the concept of a new heavens and new earth brings with it two immediate difficulties. First, difficulty number one, why am I supposed to totally buy into John's supposed vision of heaven? Couldn't he just be this crazy guy? It's, it's like lar- the new heavens, the new earth, this idea, is, that's like, it's largely absent in the Old Testament. Why, why would I just buy into what this guy is saying in Revelation? Well, in the last 150 years, people have often taught that the Old Testament provides scant mis- uh, mention or evidence of heaven. But it, it's, that's just not true. Heaven is often missed in people's reading of the Old Testament because when we read passages about a future earthly, hint, hint, physical kingdom where God reigns over his people in peace and security, etc., we fail to recognize that it's talking about a final heaven. Secondly, difficulty number two, why am I supposed to totally buy into John's supposed vision of this earthly heaven when it's so out there? Like, like science fiction, you know, it's a movie or something, Right? Well, John's vision of a new heaven and a new earth isn't him being super creative or loony in his old age. Really, um, look at Isaiah 65, starting in verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever 
and that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Does that sound familiar? Of course it does. That's just like Revelation 21. This was the plan of redemptive history culminating all along the way. Full redemption was always meant to be physical. Okay? Second, you know, so um, if it's not physical, what, what, what else is it saying? Well, if it's not physical, then actually redemption would be a failure. Without a physical redemption of a new heavens and a new earth where the earth is fully restored, redemption would be a failure. In Genesis 1, when God created the separate parts of creation, what did he say after each part was completed? It was good. That's right. But through mankind's fall, all creation was infected by sin. And um, it's why in Romans 8, Paul says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. And hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. If mankind were redeemed to just go to some immaterial heaven like in a Charmin commercial forever, then redemption would actually be incomplete. Randy Alcorn in his book Heaven said, if God were to end history and reign forever in a distant heaven, earth would be remembered as a graveyard of sin and failure. That's not redemption. This creation that God deemed good, this creation waits for redemption with groaning. Without the new heavens and the new earth, God's plan of redemption would absolutely be a failure. So, our hope isn't for our disembodied souls to to play harps, right? In the clouds. But for our physical resurrected bodies to live for eternity on this physical earth renewed. Now, if you feel like that's just too hard to believe, too hard to even imagine, let me mention two things to you. First, is it any crazier than walking on water? Is it any crazier than healing diseases? Is it any crazier than casting out demons or raising the dead? No. The new heavens and the new earth is just an extension of those things. Those things were crazy to people witnessing them in the first century. And difficult to believe. We're just used to thinking about those things. You probably, if you grew up in a church, had pictures of those things on a felt board in a Sunday school classroom. Well, if you're old enough. But American Christian culture has failed to sufficiently teach about our ultimate hope, the new heavens and the new earth. And so it sounds foreign to us. Secondly, Revelation is a book of symbols. Now, there's a reason that John is given a vision with symbols. It's because some things are too difficult to grasp without symbols. Think of how 
the future Messiah was described as the Lamb of God in Isaiah. Lamb of God? You know why? It would have been too difficult to imagine the great, victorious, forever King, the Messiah, dying. They couldn't have imagined that. So he had to be the suffering lamb so that they could get a picture to understand. We too are so ingrained in a fallen world that it's too difficult for us to imagine a renewed, glorified world. We need the symbols. Like the little comment John made at the end of verse 1. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and, it says, the sea was no more. In the ancient world, the sea stood for chaos and danger. So though we can't sufficiently grasp what the new heavens and the new earth will be like, we can understand in some way that all the chaos in the world will be over. So, we can gain more confidence that the new heavens and the new earth is an essential part of our hope in the gospel, even if we can't totally grasp it. Because God's plan of redemption has always been, one, physical in nature, and two, if creation isn't renewed, God's plan has failed. The next natural question, the sort of middle part of this passage is, what can we actually know what the new heavens and the new earth will be like? Because I'm not excited. It's still far off. Well, let me explain some of it. We're given four insights in the following verses. First, all peoples will be with God forever. All peoples will be with God forever. Verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, the second half of chapter 21 and then on into chapter 22 describes this New Jerusalem. So, you know, I won't go into covering that this morning, but I'll just remind you that the New Jerusalem and the bride, those were symbols of the church. So all peoples who have believed throughout time who are in fact one people, are there. There will be no more divisions or sects or others or strangers. All one people. No more trying to distinguish ourselves from others to create sort of special group identities. There won't be any negative dividing emphasis on being American versus other or white versus black versus Asian versus Latino or male versus female, or denomination versus that denomination, or your sin versus my sin. We will be all peoples as one. And then verse 3, it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. What does that mean? I mean, hasn't God been with His people? Right? Isn't that like one of the things He says all throughout the Bible? What's so significant here? Well, although God is a spirit, you know, as one commentator put it, 
the idea that God and His glory won't just be in one centralized place, but wherever we go will be in the immediate presence and fullness of God. And you may, you may be asking, so Danny, you're not moving my heart. It's not, I'm, God's presence, you know. What did David long for most? Psalm 27. One thing I ask the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. What about Job? When he was deep in anguish, he said, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end He will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see Him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. And what about John? When John chapter 17, when Jesus says, you know, what's the essence of eternal life? What is the true essence of eternal life? that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Our contemporary view of heaven isn't about God. It's about us. It's a, not about His glory, but it's, it's about our healing. It's not about His incomprehensible grace to undeserving sinners. But, uh, as one theologian put it, it's about our goodness and self-importance. We are the cosmic center and God plays the supporting role. But what's so great about us being in God's presence is that we will be so taken up in it, we will be self-forgetful rather than self-important. So I, I was having uh, lunch with, I went to the Presbyterian Church's General Assembly, and I was having lunch with one pastor, and we were catching up on where our kids were in life, and I wondered aloud, um, what our relationships with our kids would be like in the new heavens and the new earth? And you know how he responded? It was sort of in a slightly chiding way. He said, I more wonder what our relationship will be like with our father." I wonder it every day. He was right. And I needed to hear that. Randy Alcorn noted, to fully enjoy God in the new heavens and the new earth, that is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here on earth. Fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, children, or the company of present friends, those are only shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. What will the new heavens and the new earth be like? All peoples with God forever. The second descriptor of the new heavens and the earth comes in verse 4. I call it the extinction of distress. Verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What's he saying? The debilitating effects of sin, those are going to be abolished. The new heavens and new earth is being spoken of in terms of the negative. What's not there? Why? Because it's too much for us to even conceive the positive. The longer that I've ministered, I've found that everyone who lives in this fallen world, long enough, they experience deep wounds, daily afflictions, and everyone dies. These cause distress. As self-sufficient Americans, we don't like to think of ourselves in distress, right? So, you know, just to make it simpler, let me take the D off and just call it stress, because that's what we call it. Oh, I'm so stressed. You're in distress. But call it stress for the sake of, so you can hear it. Um, We admit that, you know, there's a day, you know, when the beauty of creation won't be marred by brokenness. There will be no more stress. I have a, a, a couple that are, that are close friends of mine, and the wife was abused as a child, and she's been to tons of counseling. And yet her memories throughout counseling only get worse. Her feelings about her body have gotten worse. Her demands for justice have become more pronounced. And you know what? Her expectations for her husband to protect her and their kids from everything. They've only gotten worse. And her inability to forgive him for very minor things that he did in their marriage ten years ago, that's gotten worse. She and he have both expressed feelings of hopelessness. And he said to me not too long ago, that he had recently imagined what it would be like to not have to live anymore. Just the relief of it. That couple needs to know simply in the negative. You know what? There is hope. In the new heavens, the new earth, there won't be any more distress. There will be no more tears. There won't be any more death. Now, so then moving on to the positive, let's look at verse 5. There will be a renewed cosmic order. What does that even mean? Well, look at verse 5. And he said, and, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. It's often been taught that in the end times, the earth, all of creation will be annihilated and then started over. And I'd like to argue against this for three reasons. One, this idea of annihilation has come from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, where it's been translated in the past, the earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Um, but the oldest Greek manuscripts contain the word translated, uh, don't contain the word translated burned up. Rather, they contain the word that means found or shown. So the NIV translates it laid bare, and the ESV renders it exposed. Second, 1 Corinthians 3 talks about how the fire of God's judgment will destroy 
the work of those who have built with, like say, wood, hay, or straw, but he will purify the work of those who have built with gold, silver, and costly stones. It's not a destruction, but a purification. Third, again, like we mentioned in the first point of the sermon, if God has to destroy creation altogether and start over, then God's plan of redeeming creation hasn't been filled. It's failed. So, it's been popularly phrased among pastors and scholars that we're not talking about the creation of all new things in the new heavens and the earth, but about the creation, but the renewal or the making new of all things made. Again, I'll say, it's not the creation of all new things, but the renewal of all things made. So there will be a continuity between our bodies now and then, but they'll be glorified. I look forward to that. I've lost half of my hair this summer. They will have a new quality and a superiority of character. We'll recognize each other when all things are made new. And you know what? At creation, before the fall in Genesis 1, 26-28, God gave mankind two jobs, one to fill the earth and second to govern it. At creation, that was before the fall, he gave mankind those jobs so that the whole world would be then filled with God's glory. So if the cosmos is renewed to its original intent, then we won't be sitting around playing harps like in the Looney Tunes. But we'll be doing stuff like making culture, governing creation, and it'll glorify God just without the curse. Have you ever thought, I'm working to glorify God with all my heart and my work, but those plans are being frustrated by these terrible, sinful obstacles. I'd love for this work that I'm doing at the moment if only X disgraceful thing wasn't in my way. I served as a youth minister at a large Presbyterian church before I went to seminary. And the deal was if I stayed for five years, they'd pay for seminary because it's hard to get a youth guy to stay for five years. And so I was like, deal. Um, And we started with 25 students and a couple volunteers. But through the great, really incredible mentoring that I had from two different elders that I met with every week and regular repentance and the work of the Holy Spirit in people's hearts, by the end of year five, we had 14 actively engaged volunteering Uh, volunteers discipling 145 growing students. And numbers of parents were coming to the church and coming to faith because their children had led them there. It was this unbelievable, amazing experience for me. And this was what I thought that my career in ministry would always be like. In that final year, I worked so hard to train leaders and in preparing systems for when I was gone in order to finish well. But the next guy came in, and in both hubris and insecurity, he immediately blew up everything we had set up, all the systems of outreach and discipleship. And soon, nearly all the volunteer leaders and the vast numbers of students, they were gone in a matter of weeks. And it was back down to 25 or 30 students. The community of faith that we had spent five years fostering had been destroyed. 
Have you ever felt this way about your work? In the new heavens and the new earth, with a renewed cosmic order, we'll surely be working, governing, subduing, but there won't be those impossible obstacles of sin anymore to frustrate our efforts to glorify God. Eternal life will be full of active service, but you know what? We will love it. And our hearts will be in it. Now, not only will the new heavens and the new earth contain all peoples being with God forever, not only will it involve the extinction of distress, and not only will we be living in the midst of a renewed cosmic order, but we'll also have one more thing. Eternal satisfaction. Eternal satisfaction of the soul. Look at verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. It is done, he says. Guaranteed. Alpha and Omega are, are the beginnings and the end of the Greek alphabet. He's the source and origin of all things, and he constitutes their goal and their aim. This is how things are going to be, is what he's saying right there. But rather than leaving at it that, you know, that's tough if you don't like it. Deal with it. That's just the way it is. You know, sort of like my father used to say to me when our family's plans impeded my desires and longings. You know, living in Charleston, Coleman, our son, is always having to go on yet another historical tour or gardens in 95-degree heat or a plantation. Why? Because some extended family member or or friend is visiting, and he'd, he'd just like to be hanging out with his friends or reaching some new level on a video game, right? So do I say, tough kid, that's the way it is. Instead, he encouraged us, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Again, we have to... We have the use of a symbol here to help us grasp something that seems really actually inconceivable. Throughout Scripture, thirst refers to sort of the desperate longings and needs that people have. But it redirects that thirst to its truest longing. Think of the Psalms. As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. As many theologians and philosophers and sociologists have acknowledged throughout time, man has a God-shaped vacuum, a void in his soul that can't be satisfied by anything else but God. And that's why Psalm 1 speaks of the man who meditates on God's Word day and night as a tree planted by streams of water. I have a friend who lived in Charleston for a couple years, a friend with a restless soul. Have you ever known someone like that? He's always looking for something to fill it, always needing things that are new and exciting, always shifting from one lifestyle approach to another. And when he first moved here, 
he was like, Charleston is amazing. This is incredible. You know, um, but by the end, he said things like, I'm quoting text from him, Charleston is a dead end of a place that makes you feel trapped. Another day he wrote, there's nowhere good to eat here. I don't know. Seriously. How twisted is that? There are like three amazing new restaurants opening every month, and we residents can't even keep up, right? Like, the places that we send people have already closed because they couldn't keep up with... Anyway. There's enough history and culture and nature to explore for a lifetime here. So what, what's my friend's problem? Our souls are restless. Longing for God. In the new heavens and the new earth, our souls won't ever be restless or unfulfilled. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life. Throughout the Bible, God is a spring of living water that assuages thirst and wells up into eternal life. So, as commentator Robert Mount suggests, in an arid climate like Palestine, a spring of cool water would be a vivid symbol of refreshment and satisfaction. So, what if you were always satisfied? Seriously. Rather than being constantly tempted to move from desire to desire, only to remain thirsty. I spent like three weeks on um, like Facebook trader, whatever, like where you buy things off of Facebook, looking at, at bikes because I wanted to start uh, using biking as an exercise and I was researching all these old bikes and I was looking for bikes that were, you know, you know, being gotten rid of that were between like 80 and $150, nothing fancy, but like uh, a friend that I had lunch with on Friday was like, hey, I just got a new bike. You want my old one? And I was like, sure. And he brought it over, and it was like a $700 bike. And it was so shiny and beautiful, and I loved it for that moment. But later that afternoon, I was so discontent. What if you were always satisfied rather than constantly being tempted to move from desire to desire? For those of you who are unmarried and long for intimate companionship so much, or those of you who are newly married and are looking for your mate's approval and love to fulfill you, or those of you who have been married for a time and you desperately want to have kids because maybe then that will make you happy. Or those of you who have kids and desperately want them to get past diapers, right? Or those of you who have been married for a long time and your kids have grown up and gone and you feel unfulfilled and you fantasize about being married to someone else who would appreciate you better and treat you better. Paul makes it clear in his letters that in the new heavens and the new earth, we won't be married. All love, even those desires, are taken up and satisfied in God. 
Have you ever seen, had like what seemed like the perfect day or even the perfect moment of utter contentment? That happened to me um, when I was a junior in college. I was working at a Christian dude ranch one summer. Um, I, I thought that would get more laughs, but anyway. And I, I was a counselor, um, and it was the 4th of July. And the girlfriend, the girl that I was dating, who was also a counselor, she was away um, taking a class for a couple weeks at college. And I was, uh, at that moment, I was, I was walking closely to the Lord, and I sat eating the best watermelon that I had ever had um, in the shade while the, kid, while the kids and counselors who I'd seen bonding and growing during that week were gleefully playing kickball. And the sun was going down and music was in the background. And I was like, I never want this moment to end. This is the moment. Utter contentment. Satisfaction. We will know that all day, every day, in the new heavens and the new earth. And I love that he adds at the end of the verse, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Why is that so key? We believe that our greatest efforts to do this or to that, that will finally fulfill us. But by God's grace and Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, we'll get to experience the eternal satisfaction that our hearts long for and search for, not by some exercise regimen, not by some career path, not by some parenting philosophy, or by following some television show or book series, or by paying off all of our financial debts, or by saving up to get the boat that the guy down the street has that I want to. It's satisfaction without cost for us. Or achieved by us. It's free. So have these verses given you a greater picture of the Christian hope? It's tied directly to the new heavens and the new earth. All people will be united instead of divided. And we'll be self-forgetful rather than self-focused. Because we'll be in the presence of God and His glory. And we'll no longer be weighed down or burdened by stress, or rather de-stress, because of hurt and loss and failure or the threat of death ever again. And all of creation will be renewed, not like in a make-believe fairy tale, but on this physical earth. And so that our efforts won't be frustrated ever again by the effects of sin and we'll love our jobs. Did you hear that? We'll love our jobs. Kids, the class that you hate the most won't be hated. We won't be restless. We will be utterly satisfied. And the question then remains, though, what does that hope for the future mean for us today as a church? Three brief things. What difference does the new heavens and new earth make for me today? One, the present benefits of Christianity alone, just the present benefits not future hope, the present benefits of Christianity, those cannot conquer my sinful practices. If I don't have the hope of the new heavens and new earth, I am not going to be 
putting to death my sin. Why? Sounds heretical, Danny. Look at verses 7 and 8. The vision moves from the future hope of the utter satisfaction of the soul to what it looks like now to not have that hope. Verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The hope of the future new heavens and new earth makes us brave to follow God without compromise, in spite of persecution and suffering, for living by and upholding His truths in our present culture instead of being cowardless or cowardly and faithless. And people whose lives are distinguished by, by passions like murder, sexual immorality, controlling the future or controlling people, that, that's what I would call today um, sorcery, because that's what sorcery was trying to do, controlling people and controlling the future. Um, idolatry, you know, the worship of, of or making ultimate things in life that, that are created things not, rather than God. These are all people whose addictions are based on an absence of hope in the future new heavens and new earth. In a broken world, even the fellowship of Christian community and even the blessing of living generally by God, God's ordained morality, and even the hope of an abstract heaven when I die that's vaguely spiritual, none of those are enough to make me brave enough and faithful enough to conquer my sinful practices. I need the confident hope in the fulfillment of all my longings and desires and the healing of all my wounds and the abolition of my fears, the peace of a forever home and family, the physical righting of all wrongs, the self-forgetting wonder of being in the presence of God in His glory forever, not achieved by me but freely. That's what I need to put to death my sin. Second application. Heaven on earth. Heaven on earth is future. Heaven on earth is future. So accept that it's not today. Accept being in exile today. Hebrews 11 um, is a passage known as the Hall of Faith and as it lists many of redemptive history's great women and men. And in chapter 11, verse 13, it says, These all died in faith, not, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, but as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. One commentator said of the new heavens and new earth that the Bible portrays life in God's presence in our resurrected bodies, in a resurrected universe as so exciting and so compelling that even the youngest and healthy of us who have all of life to look forward to, right, 
should daydream about it. Not just the sick and the dying. The idea that if we fall in love with the place and look forward to the future that God has for us, we'll fall more in love with God. And we'll be emboldened to follow Him with greater resolve and perspective. You know, we're constantly and subconsciously searching in life for a home. Whether you say it or not, we are either trying to find a home or create a perfect home. And we're doing whatever we can to either find it or maintain a sense of home. And that that leads to all kinds of sin. Uh, A friend in his 60s that I have who is regularly, he has a, uh, a mother uh, who is in her 90s. Uh, she, I think she's 90, she might have just turned 97, but she is the most manipulative uh, person that I have ever <laughs> heard about. I'm terrified to meet her. But um, she is terribly abusive to him, and yet he goes over to her house all the time, and her words crush him, even at 97. And he's in his 60s. You'd think he'd be past, you know, mommy issues. But he keeps going to visit looking for something to change. Why? We desire a better home than this one. One with true belonging, true familiarity, a place with loved ones, time spent with significant people. But parents, think of how much we love our children. And we long to make a home for them. God loves us even more. So you can accept being in exile today. You're in exile. Get used to it. Be okay with it. How would your life look different if your expectation wasn't trying to make a dream home today, but you accepted and embraced that you're in exile in this life and that's okay? The third sort of present application uh, for really believing and hoping in the new heavens and the new earth today is that creation is governed for God's glory. That creation that's governed for God's glory is a preview of what's to come. So don't stop. Jesus famously said in his Sermon on the Mount, you are are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. So in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to you. No, sorry. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The body of Christ and our lives, as they are conformed to Christ's image, they create a model home a model home for the world to see the goodness of God and redemption. They're a preview of what's to come. The church isn't... uh, This church, it's not waiting for a new pastor. It's not waiting for a building to call home. It's not waiting for the momentum of energized members. 
It's waiting for the new heavens and new earth. And so we can be in any situation a model home for the world to see a preview of the goodness of God and redemption. And so we need to just get busy doing it. I have a good friend who was, um, ha- he has a debilitating uh, pain in his lower back that he's gone to many, many doctors trying to overcome. And um, we got to know each other in seminary, and he was in so, such bad shape in grad school that um, he would just like sort of have to lie on the floor. And so his wife talked him into reading Harry Potter. And he skeptically started reading because, you know, he, he was this, you know, bright guy um, who was um, reading theology, not Harry Potter. But one day, she came home from work, and he was laying prostrate on the ground with his arms out wide and his face in the carpet uh, with Harry Potter, like, right above him. And she was like, hi, David. And he was like, hi. And she said, what are you doing? And he said, I can't go on. I know that what Harry has to do. And she said, well, did you enjoy the book so far? He said, yes. And she said, and did you like what the author did in the last six books? And he's like, yes. So she responded, well, then you need to trust the author for the ending. We need to trust the author for the ending. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us a hope in the new heavens and the new earth that makes us giddy. Would you make us a model home? Would you give us a renewed hope that we might be all the more loyal to you? Would you give us the strength to trust you for the end? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.